Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASBEGIN. I'm Jason Silverman, and I'm joined today by my co-host and, and bestie, Oh, Dr. yes, we're besties right now. <laughs> Dr. Tamara Hajat. <laughs> How are you doing, Tamara? I'm doing really, really good. Um, Jason, yes, you are my bestie. I can tell you that I have a lot of besties, though. <laughs> but you're one of my number one besties. <laughs> uh, okay. I, as long as I'm in that top tier, I'll take it. <laughs> so anyway, Tamara, our conversation right now is happening just a little over a week after NAS began, the big 50th anniversary meeting in Orlando. And how amazing was it just to finally get a chance to hang out as a group, see our whole NAS began family, everybody that we haven't seen in like three years, but also it was the first time in oh, three years that the Bow Sounds crew got to hang out in person. Yes, yes. Do you know what? Naspigan was the first time that I met Jen in person. That I knew you before crazy. and I knew Peter before, but Jen, it was so great kind of hanging out with the crew. We kind of obviously had a, a lot of good chats and laughs and a lot of people came over and told us how much they love the podcast, which was amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it was. And so thank you, all the listeners. Thank you for everyone that stopped by. Uh, we had a little booth set up one day and people came by and talked to us. Anybody that just stopped any of us on the conference floor and just shared how much you like the podcast, how much your trainees like the podcast, how your trainees are using it to study for boards, any of those things, you know, thanks. Thanks so much for that. Uh, it made us feel really good about what we're doing here and that we're definitely, we were already committed to keeping this going and improving it and keeping it as good as we possibly can make it. But this, that just made it even more an imperative knowing how how much this means to you guys. So thanks for that. Yeah, honestly, it was amazing. And kind of meeting everybody, meeting our listeners, we appreciate them saying hi and telling us how much they like the podcast, giving us some suggestions. It was great. It was honestly, it warmed my heart. And I learned that my love <laughs> is um, something that everybody recognizes. <laughs> so I had a couple of people like, oh, I recognize that laugh. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's good to be recognized, Tamara, for whatever reason you get recognized. So Should I trademark it? <laughs> uh, maybe. Hey, that's my laugh. <laughs> you could try it. You could try it. Um, but it, but it one of the other things that was really great at the meeting, besides you know the time that we spent together as a Bow Sounds crew and the just the people that we talked to and seeing old friends and colleagues from across North America and even outside North America, is the fact that we also got a chance to meet with a whole bunch of our former guests from Bow Sounds that we had never had a chance to meet in person, that we had only ever spoken to over Zoom or you know emailed back and forth. It was so great to be able to actually just spend a few minutes uh, chatting with them. I think I spent the first two days of the conference meeting a whole bunch of people where the first thing we said to each other was, 
nice to actually meet you in person. I've only ever followed you on Twitter or only ever listened to you on Sounds or, you know, emailed with you. So it was so great to see so many people in person. Uh, and yeah. we did a few recordings in person, we which did. was amazing. Yes, yes. And uh, those episodes will be coming out probably in the new year. But uh, yeah. it was it was really good to have some episodes where everyone got to sit in the same room and talk to one another without the internet involved. Right. Just and packing. I learned that I'm really good at packing because I packed all the recording gear and did not have to check in a bag. That is impressive. That is very impressive. I played a lot of Tetris growing up. (laughs) (laughs) See, that is training ground. I like it. I like it. But you know what? One of our Bounce Sounds guests that we got, we both got to see in person, I got to see again, and you got to meet for the first time, was our guest today, Dr. Catherine Walsh. Yes. Oh, my gosh. She is amazing. I love her. She is so humble, so great. I think her and I are besties right now. (laughs) (laughs) You are going to make a lot of guests jealous that you haven't said that about, but it's okay. There's time. There's time. But I mean, she is so great. I've worked with her a uh, a little bit over kind of the celiac SIG and celiac meetings. And obviously we interviewed her on this episode, which I love. She mentioned something about just a little spoiler, but about her kind of believing in herself and nobody else believed in her and kind of carving her own career and her own path. And that was so inspiring to me. And I was so excited to meet her in person. So I love her. She's amazing. So, yeah. But do you want to introduce the topic today, (laughs) Since you spoiled it all. No, I'm just kidding. We we haven't talked about what we talked to Catherine about. But, you know, today's episode, we had a conversation about endoscopy, specifically about teaching endoscopy skills. So, I mean, obviously, endoscopy is one of the most complex and important set of skills that we learn as gastroenterologists. And how we learn and how we teach those skills can have a major impact on our technical abilities and the future abilities and even the physical health of our trainees in their hopefully long careers. There's been a lot of work within our field in pediatric GI and in adult GI on best practices to sort of optimize education in this area. Uh, Some recent statements on quality indicators in education or training in endoscopy. And a significant amount of that work has been done by our guest. We've already kind of foreshadowed Dr. Catherine Walsh. Yeah. So let me introduce Dr. Catherine Walsh. Um, She's a pediatric gastroenterologist at SickKids Hospital in Toronto and a scientist at the Wilson Center for Research in Education. Her primary research focus is on examining factors that influence the acquisition of complex clinical skills and on identifying best practices in the training and assessment of clinical skills including endoscopy, which is the topic of this episode. She has published and presented widely on these topics, including the most recent NASPCAM meeting, where she did a workshop there as well. And it was great to have a chance to talk to her about all of that and talk through some of these important concepts. So it's going to be a great episode. Absolutely. It's an amazing episode. Yes, yes. It is. So... On to the show. On to the show. <laughs> we'll get it. We'll, it'll happen one time. <laughs> All right. One day. 
Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for joining us on Bell Sounds today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, we're, we're happy to have you. We're going to start with what some of our guests consider to be the toughest question. But for our listeners who don't know you already, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Uh, so you warned me that this would be a tough question and I had to think about it. But if I had to describe myself in one sentence, I would say I'm a mother of two wonderful children, a wife, a pediatric gastroenterologist and a clinician scientist with a focus on education. And often when I tell people that I'm focused on education and I'm an educational scientist, they assume that that means teaching. But what I actually do most of is devoted to research and research in education. And my program of research really focuses on examining factors that influence how health professionals learn clinical skills, including endoscopy and how we can accurately assess clinical competence. So that's a very interesting topic and very interesting area. And we're going to talk more about it in this podcast, we do want to know a little bit more about what you like to do outside of education medicine. So can you tell us maybe a book, a podcast, a TV show, a movie that you've listened to, read, or watched that you particularly enjoy and recommend to our audience? So as my kids are still quite young. I don't have a ton of time for reading except when I'm on holiday. So I tend to kind of keep a list of books and then try to catch up on them during the summer. But I have been trying to listen to some nonfiction audiobooks during my commute to work. So recently, I would say one that I enjoyed was Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, which I found quite interesting. And it really explores kind of miscommunication and the assumptions that people make when they're interacting with those that they don't know. And in terms of podcasts, the two I would say I listen to most regularly, aside from Bowel Sounds, of course, are are How I Built This, uh, which is about entrepreneurs and they talk about how they started their companies. And if you haven't listened to it, the one on Patagonia is definitely my favorite and how that company was started. Uh, And the second podcast I listen to regularly is the New York Times, The Daily, is really just a way to keep up with current events, I would say. Yeah, how I built this. I've heard a couple of people recommend this, so I'm definitely going to look into it. Yeah, it's very good. And she's going to use that as a springboard, you know, when we catch up with Catherine five years from now, she'll be the head and CEO of a new company. And now you'll know where she got some of her ideas. Uh, One can only hope, right? (laughs) Well, while we're focused on the here and now in your current career, maybe I'll just start by asking you, how did you first develop your interest in medical education and specifically what you talked about, your particular area of focus and research on how trainees gain clinical skills like endoscopy? So I would say that going through medical school, I always love procedural focused specialties and I always enjoyed working with children. I taught swimming as a child and I was a camp counselor. So pediatric GI was kind of a natural fit. And during medical school, I was also heavily involved in medical education, mainly through teaching and committee work. But I was fortunate during my pediatrics residency to really find a mentor who introduced me to health professions research. And I did a few small studies, nothing related to procedures, but that got me interested in education as a research focus. So when I started my GI training, it became apparent to me that endoscopy training was really largely unstructured. And there was a huge opportunity for improvement in that area. So when I started my master's of education during my second and third years of fellowship, I decided to focus that research on endoscopy. And I did a study around endoscopy and feedback. 
And then from there, I've kind of continued on and never looked back. That's amazing. And you have uh, quite a few publications. And one we want to talk about today talks about a core curriculum in uh, ergonomics. How do you pronounce that? Ergonomics. 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 It's a lot of syllables <laughs> first thing in the morning. It's okay. Uh, Penelope is a word that I cannot pronounce. I have you to, just nailed it. What are you talking about? Well, I had to practice that for a long time. <laughs> So let me start from the beginning. One of the things that we want to talk about regarding the topic of education in endoscopy is a recent publication that you had, which is a core curriculum in ergonomics in endoscopy. And this is very interesting to me. And I don't know that a lot of us are taught about this or know what it is. Can you tell us what ergonomics is, how it applies to endoscopy, and why is it so important? Yeah, so ergonomics, as it relates to endoscopy, really kind of seeks to understand how endoscopists interact with elements of their work environment. So this includes things like endoscopy equipment and the unit, and it seeks to kind of examine how those things can be redesigned to reduce the risk of endoscopy-related injuries and improve endoscopist well-being and really optimize kind of overall how we perform endoscopy and the system around it. And if you think about it in a bit of a different light, it's really how a job can be best fit to an individual as opposed to how an individual can adjust to fit their job. So in thinking of equipment, we want to adjust the equipment to fit the individual performing the job as opposed to us having to kind of make all these awkward movements and and use equipment in a certain way just because of the design of an equipment. And when we think about individuals, there's many different types of individuals of all shapes and sizes. So it's really important that we think about accommodating anybody from kind of the fifth percentile woman in terms of measurement wise to the 95th percentile man. And if you do this, you'll make your workplace a safe space for all individuals who are working within that environment. And I would say that ergonomics is important. As we know, endoscopy-related injuries are really quite common among pediatric gastroenterologists. So we carried out a recent study with Dr. Wenli Roon and Doug Fishman. And in that survey, 36.5% of all faculty and a third of trainees reported experiencing a musculoskeletal injury that they directly attributed to endoscopy. So that's quite a few endoscopists. And we can use principles of ergonomics to help mitigate risk factors so that endoscopist work environments um, are safer, and that will help to reduce the risk of endoscopy-related injuries. That's very interesting. Like, I know that when I finish half a day of scopes, my back hurts, my feet hurt. So this is a very interesting area. Wow. So I actually wanted to zero in on that term of endoscopy-related injury because before, certainly at any point during my residency and, and fellowship in pediatric GI, I don't think I ever heard that as a term. Certainly people might talk about, like Tamara just said, feeling sore after a session in the operating room or in the endoscopy suite. Certainly people might, uh, as they were learning, especially find certain movements or certain positions awkward to be in. But I don't think people use the term endoscopy-related injury. And I think it's really important to highlight that these aches and pains can actually lead to more significant problems and actual true injury, not just symptoms or, or discomfort. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, What are the most common types of endoscopy-related injury that people encounter? 
Yeah. And you mentioned that they can really impact people's lives. And in that same survey, we asked individuals how they had impacted their lives, how these injuries had impacted their practice. And 8% of those people reported that they had actually taken time off work because of the injuries, which is quite a high percentage when you think of it. And 30%, over 30% actually reported adjusting their practice and 25% or a quarter had to receive a a treatment for those injuries. So it is a significant burden. These numbers indicate that endoscopy-related injuries are really impacting pediatric gastroenterologists. And despite this, only 20% of people in our survey said that they had received any training around ergonomics. As as you had mentioned earlier, it is quite rare still to receive formal training within your fellowship program. And when you look at sites of injury, the most common reported amongst our survey of pediatric gastroenterologists were the back and the neck, upper extremities, and particularly the thumb, hands, wrists, wrist, and finger pain. And there was some recent adult data which suggested that injuries may differ between men and women. So they did a survey of almost 1,700 uh, GI through the American College of Gastroenterology. And women reported significantly more upper extremity endoscopy-related injuries, while men were more likely to report lower back-related pain. So we didn't explore that specifically in our study, but there may be some kind of gender-related issues that may be uh, related to muscle mass. That's very interesting. I can I can imagine that because, I mean, we need more strength. We probably have a little bit smaller hands. We need more strength to maneuver the scope. And then I'm sure maybe the bed doesn't go as high. So maybe the height difference makes a big impact. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the elements of a good ergonomic endoscopy room setup is and what are the kind of the technical practices that we can do to prevent these injuries from happening? Do we need to do more squats? Do we need to lift (laughs) weights? There's something that we, we can do to prevent those injuries from happening. Yeah, so there are a number of things that can be done to improve your ergonomics in practice. And in regard to endoscopy, if you think of the room setup, the three kind of key things are the endoscopy tower, the monitor, and the bed. So it's very important to ensure that your endoscopy tower is positioned appropriately. And I, I think this is probably one of the things that people pay the least amount of attention to. So for colonoscopy, you really want to ensure that the tower is behind you and that it's lined up so that the patient's kind of anal rectum is in line and at the level with the insertion of the colonoscope into the processor. And this enables the universal cord, which connects kind of the endoscope to the processor to remain straight so that you don't have a lot of excessive force on your hand or the head of the endoscope. And for upper endoscopy, the tower should be further towards the head of the bed so that the patient's mouth is in line with the insertion of the endoscope into the processor. And with regard to the monitor, you want it directly in front of you so that you're not rotating your neck and your cervical spine. And there have been studies, not within endoscopy, but within the laparoscopic literature that indicate that this can help to prevent injury and reduce chronic neck strain. And I think a big thing is also the height of the monitor. And I think people often forget to adjust the height of the monitor. So you want to adjust it so that the top of the monitor is at eye level. And this places the center of the image on the monitor at about a 15 to 25 degree angle below the horizon, which is kind of a natural resting position for your eyes. And you have to be cognizant that often during endoscopy, 
a faculty may take over from a trainee or you may be switching endoscopists. So as you do switch, you should be actually adjusting the equipment and taking some time to adjust it. And the final thing is around the bed height. So you want that to be between elbow height and 10 centimeters below elbow height. And this really allow, allows for kind of a working range of the forearms. And an easy way to determine this is just to stand in front of the bed. And if the bed falls between where your elbow and your wrist is, that's a pretty reasonable height. And with regard to the individual level, you had mentioned some stretches. So there are videos available that do show some stretches that people can do between endoscopy procedures. They haven't been studied in depth, but there are good videos online if you Google them. And you also want to make sure that when you're standing, you have really kind of a neutral athletic stance so that your neck, spine, and hips are all kind of neutral and facing in one direction. And I think another thing that we don't think as much about is kind of the technical aspects. So you really want to make sure that your grip on the endoscope is neutral and you're not using your whole fist to grip the endoscope and putting a lot of force on that right wrist. So instead, with torque, you ideally want to use the larger muscles of your left arm as opposed to your right wrist to help to apply torque. And in Canada, we call this technique kind of a C technique. And we run colonoscopy workshops both in Canada, but we're also now doing them through NASVN at the annual meeting. So for those of you who are interested in learning more about this technique, uh, you should sign up for one of those. And we actually go through it on simulators and teach people this technique and using the larger muscles of their left arm to try to apply torque. I just want to ask two other really quick things in terms of the room and equipment setup. Tamara had mentioned about grip or hands for endoscopists and particularly endoscopists with smaller hands. I'm not going to generalize and say female endoscopists, although I think I, I hear it more from female trainees. And I know there are some, I won't call them assistive devices, but some add-ons for the grip, for the wheels, for the control wheels on our scopes. I wonder if you can comment on that. And then one question about anti-fatigue mats to stand up. Yeah, so there were kind of, they were called dial extenders, but they would basically kind of go on the dials and it would extend the width of the dial to kind of make it easier to reach. They've unfortunately just been taken off the market, so they are no longer available. There are people who are advocating that they do start making them again. I think one thing you can do is I always suggest to hold when you're particularly doing colonoscopy to hold the head of the endoscope in a more horizontal as opposed to an upright position. And that actually naturally shifts the dials towards your thumb. So it is much easier to reach them. So particularly individuals with smaller hands, I think that's one technique that can be used to reach those dials more easily. And I do agree with you about the cushion floor mats. They can help to reduce strain during endoscopy and they make you engage your muscles of your legs as you're trying to balance somewhat on that mat. And they are a good preventative strategy. I think too, if you're doing therapeutics, thinking about the lead apron that you're wearing, that a two-piece apron is more ergonomic than using a one-piece apron where all the weight is on your shoulders as well. Yeah, that's definitely some things that people don't necessarily think about is, you know, oh, this is fine for right now, but they don't think about what is this like on your body over many hours, over many days, over many weeks, over your entire career. So certainly we've talked quite a bit about the room setup, the equipment setup, our body position, and some of our technique in order to try and address some of those risk factors, mitigate those risk factors for endoscopy-related injury. But prevention of those injuries extends beyond just the room setup and the physical handling of the scope itself. 
Can you talk about some of the non-technical considerations and you go into this in your paper? Because those focus a little bit more on sort of the team dynamics, the group culture, institutional supports, things like that. Yeah. So just like endoscopy training, I think safe ergonomic practice really needs to be supported and prioritized by endoscopy facilities or at the endoscopy facility level. And this includes things such as ensuring that the endoscopy suites are designed with flexibility in mind so that they do accommodate people of all shapes and sizes and that they do have things such as the adjustable monitors and beds that you can adjust as well and that the equipment is movable and that endoscopists can tailor the environment to their needs and that that can be adjusted during the procedure as well. And I think there's other things around workplace policies and practices that can be really adapted to help promote safe ergonomic practices, such as the integration of micro breaks between cases. So just providing yourself with five minutes between a case and doing some of the exercises which make use of things like gloves or your gown to help relieve muscle tension and altering endoscopy schedules and thinking about the way we we schedule endoscopy time to allow for recovery between shifts. So for example, instead of scheduling a faculty for two days in a row, perhaps they do a Tuesday and a Thursday with a break in between. So just small changes in scheduling can help a lot in terms of providing some downtime and some rest time between procedures and between blocks of procedures. And I think at a faculty level, we're often focused on teaching endoscopy techniques to trainees during the procedures, but I think it's equally important to also teach and provide feedback around ergonomics. So trainees are often focused on the monitor and they don't necessarily realize that they're kind of standing in an opposition or they're moving their arms in all directions. And we've done some research that really highlights the usefulness of ergonomics training. And one thing that we've used in our research is an ergonomics-specific checklist just as a way to remind trainees of kind of key points around ergonomics that they can review quickly ahead of a procedure to make sure that everything's in line. And some centers will do an ergonomic timeout, just like a safety timeout, where they'll just double check the team's posture, making sure the bed is at an appropriate height, the monitor's at an appropriate height, and that everybody's kind of ready to go for the procedure. And I think at a broader level, we as a pediatric endoscopy community should really try to work with industry to try to develop safer and more user-friendly endoscopes and other endoscopy equipment. And as I mentioned before, endoscopy equipment should really be designed so that it does accommodate kind of anywhere from the 5th percentile woman to the 95th percentile man. So advocating, for example, for them to make the, um, the dial adjusters and things like that, that can really help to improve ergonomics and practice. Yeah, I love that. Having an ergonomics checklist or having ergonomics in timeout to make sure that it's just a standard of care where not everybody feels different about somebody doing it and somebody not doing it. And it's important because when we, like you said, when we were trainees, we focused on getting to the TI and getting to the cecum and doing great biopsies and whatever posture we needed to do is the posture we would do and acrobatics and yoga and all that to get to the TI. (laughs) So (laughs) I think this is a great field about kind of teaching our trainees to focus on their health as well, because it's important for the endoscopist to have kind of good health and not have back pain. Can I just, can I just tuck in? Cause I think other selling feature, especially uh, Catherine mentioned the C program. I mean, 
uh, I've been through so many sessions in endoscopy and training where I left the operating room with such sore wrists and hands because of the iron grip I had had on the scope and how much force I was using for torque. But using those bigger muscles, like being in a better position actually allows you to do things more effectively and easier. So why not also achieve what you're trying to achieve while doing it more easily? So I think having the checklist is amazing. And I think that's one thing that I might incorporate in our program. Other things we'd like to talk about is our trainees. So our focus is to have our trainees graduate. Uh, we want a skillful endoscopist. And you were involved in a, a recently published paper, Penquin. Is that kind of how it's penguin? Yes. Penguin? <laughs> Our logo is like a that penguin. Name. So, uh, so like penguin or penguin? <laughs> penguin. But we did, we did put the logo like a penguin. <laughs> I love it. So it stands for Pediatric Endoscopy Quality Improvement Network, Quality Standards and Indicators for Pediatric Endoscopy Guideline. And we would like to focus on quality standards for endoscopists in training. And there's something in the paper that we're going to read, and then we're going to kind of talk about or have a few questions on that. So in the paper, um, what it says is all endoscopists in training who perform procedures on pediatric patients should be supervised with regular performance monitoring and constructive feedback until they have achieved competence to perform specified routine and or emergency pediatric procedures according to appropriate current standards. So one thing we want to focus on is how do you give constructive feedback to trainees? And can you tell us kind of from the research that has been done, what is the appropriate way to give constructive feedback to trainees? Yeah, so I think to be able to provide feedback effectively, a trainer really has to be able to deconstruct tasks or break them down kind of into each of their core elements so that they can explain them in a way that's really understandable to trainees. And to do this, we say that a trainer needs to be consciously competent. And what that really means is that they have an explicit understanding of what the problems are that the trainee's having and what specific things or, or techniques need to be used to fix that problem. And then they have to be able to explain that to the trainee so that they can actually understand it. And this awareness really allows faculty to analyze situations and pinpoint specific problems and then explain to trainees how they can troubleshoot without having to take over the endoscope to demonstrate. And I think a lot of times we take over the endoscope because we don't actually know what the issue is, or maybe we do, but we can't explain what it is. So really trying to develop that conscious competence as a faculty so that we can analyze a situation and explain it to trainees. And when we think of feedback related to endoscopy, I think you have to think of not only the procedure itself, but how you set that procedure up for success and what you're doing at the end of the procedure. So ahead of the procedure, it's really important for the faculty and trainee to have a very short conversation. This doesn't have to be long, just kind of a minute or two, so that they clearly know kind of what their expectations are coming into the procedure. And they set two to three well-defined learning objectives for that session. And those learning objectives should come from both the trainer and the trainee so that there's buy-in and agreement on them. And we know that as humans, we have limited attentional capacity and we can't pay attention to everything at once. So these learning objectives really provide a focus for not only the faculty in terms of what they're observing during the procedure and what they're providing feedback on, but also for the trainee 
so that they have a focus and they have kind of clear expectations as to what they're going to get out of this training session. And then during the procedure, instruction should really be based on direct observation of the trainee's performance, and it should focus ideally on those agreed upon learning objectives. And as I mentioned, performing things simultaneously can be challenging and can cognitively overload an individual. And this is something for faculty to really keep in mind when they are providing feedback during this procedure. So as I mentioned, I'd done that study as a GI fellow. And in that, we looked at types of feedback that you could give during a procedure. And we found that actually providing less feedback during the procedure is more effective in promoting learning in the long term as opposed to giving kind of continual feedback during the procedure. And I think what happens is when you provide continual feedback, especially for novice trainees, they're so focused on listening to the feedback that they're not actually paying attention to what they're doing and they're not engaging in problem solving and learning from the procedure at hand. So to minimize cognitive overload, when you're providing feedback during a procedure, it's important if you do have something to say that's kind of longer to have the trainee stop, assuming it's safe to do so, and stabilize the endoscope and have the trainee look at you and then have a conversation about what the issue is, what you could potentially do, and then have them try the solution. And for more senior trainees, you can use this as an opportunity to try to get them to reflect. So for them to clearly articulate on their own what they think the issue is and try to come up with solutions that they may want to try. Whereas for the more novice trainee, you may have to be more directive in terms of pinpointing what the problem is and telling them kind of what the next steps may be. And for similar reasons related to cognitive overload, you don't want to have trainees giving a running commentary of their performance because this requires a lot of cognitive effort and can really impair their learning. So I just wanted to follow on with a few comments and maybe tack on questions about that because I think that was really great advice around a general approach to feedback. And I think it's really important being really mindful of a trainee's cognitive capacity. And I think that short break, look at me, Let's talk about what's happening here and now go back to it. A sort of a timeout is a great approach to still have that interaction. And like, what do you think is going on here? What difficulty are you encountering? Here is a solution. Okay, now go back. Makes a lot more sense than waving your hands and trying to get them to, to listen to you while they're clearly struggling with something. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also really like the fact that you talked about picking a couple of components of the task to really focus on or some clear, narrow objectives. There's a, a great book, you know, put in a plug for your next commute called Peak. Uh, you might have already encountered it. There's a book by Anders Ericsson. And this is the book that everyone talks about, about the 10,000 hours it takes to really learn something or become an expert in something. And part of how he breaks down the discussion of mastery learning or, or really achieving mastery around a skill is to break down the skill into small parts and, and set very specific near-term goals and keep working on that, get coaching around that, and then move on to the next thing. So I, th I think that's really important. The, the one follow-up question I had, though, is I have come across, and I, I wish I could quote a particular study, but I have come across some research on the language used to provide direction, especially in endoscopy or laparoscopic surgery, for example, where we need to be among different faculty, more uniform in terms of what terminology we want to use when you're applying torque, or is it to the right? Is it clockwise? So that the trainee doesn't get co cognitively overloaded 
trying to keep everything straight in terms of how different faculty members provide guidance. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, no, for sure. And we're actually doing a study currently with one of the fellows who's looking at this exact issue. So within the Canadian and the United Kingdom train the trainer programs, they do teach kind of specific terminology to use. And I think it's for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. For one thing, there's many ways to say the same thing. So for example, you could say deflect the tip down and that yields the same result as turn the big wheel up. And I think a lot of faculty use non-specific terminology. So they may say, go a little bit over there, but you don't really know what that means or where that is. So it is recommended to use common directive instruction. And there are kind of 14 key terms that have been published in the literature that can be used across faculty at an institution to help ensure that there is consistency across faculty. So those, I think the two most important are stop and slow down. But those also include advance, pull back, tip up, tip down, tip left, tip right, torque clockwise and torque counterclockwise, insufflate and aspirate or suck, rinse and irrigate. And this really allows trainees to clearly know what the instructor is talking about. And I think another common question we get is kind of where should I be directing the instruction? Should I be directing it towards the trainee's hands and what they're doing with the endoscope? Or should I be directing it to the video monitor? But we do recommend to direct the instruction towards the video monitor. And you can also use kind of a clock face analogy when you think of the video monitor in terms of hours of on a clock to pinpoint specific directions. And there has been actually some research, not within endoscopy, but within kind of more basic motor learning, that feedback that is pointing to or directing the attention of a trainee towards the effects of a movement is actually more effective than feedback that directs attention to the movements of the trainees. So by focusing your attention on the monitor, which is an external focus of attention, it's actually likely more effective than focusing it on kind of their actual hand movements, which is more of an internal focus of attention. Yeah. So like go over there and touch the screen and be like, over there. Which you've all seen. There. There. You see many, many fingerprints on the uh, the yeah. screen. A lot of times like using the clock analogies, like seven o'clock or six o'clock kind of confused me a little bit. But I think sometimes it's helpful on the screen, especially when you're trying to identify the TI. Is that something in the official terminology or is it something that is not recommended? No, it is suggested to use a clock face analogy. And I think I think where trainees get confused is where sometimes faculty are talking about what they're doing with their hands and sometimes they're talking about what they're doing with the monitor so that if they really try to consistently always provide feedback in relation to the monitor, it becomes much easier. Equally important is feedback after the procedure and just taking kind of three to five minutes after the procedure to get the trainee to reflect on what happened during the procedure and highlight key learning points and give the trainee then things that they can take away from the procedure as things to work on during the next procedure so that when they do meet with another faculty and the faculty asks, what do you want to work on? They have those points kind of clearly laid out for them. 
Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We recently kind of implemented that here at Children's where the fellows bring in a kind of a checklist and the pre-procedure and post-procedure checklist where they say they're comfortable. Uh, you talk about how you're doing the procedure and then feedback after the procedure. So one thing we wanted to talk about is what are the standards for pediatric GI trainees on competency for procedures? You mentioned in the paper that there have been talk about what trainees, what criteria trainees need to meet to determine if they're competent enough to go out there and start doing procedures on their own. Is it something related to number, like the number of procedures? How do we determine competency? Yeah. So competence, if you think of kind of how it's defined, it's really the minimum level of skill, knowledge, and expertise that's required to perform a procedure safely. But traditionally, it's really been the number of procedures that you performed under supervision that's been used as a surrogate for demonstration of competent performance. But we know, particularly from the adult literature, that there's huge variation in the rates at which trainees acquire skills. So saying that there's a set number of procedures at which everybody will be competent is not realistic. So reflective of these concerns, the pediatric credentialing guidelines, which NASWIAN has through their training guidelines, instead uh, they outline competency thresholds as opposed to kind of absolute numbers of procedures. And what a competence threshold is, it's really the minimum recommended number of procedures that a trainee should perform before competence is assessed. So probably the number that they should perform before they're likely ready to be assessed as being competent or not. So the current guidelines specify it's 100 upper endoscopies and 120 ileocolonoscopies. And those are largely based on adult data because we just don't have the pediatric data. But once the trainee meets that competence threshold, it's at that point that assessment is really important um, in terms of determining whether the performance that they're doing at that time is commensurate with competence. And we know that there's kind of a number of things aside from procedural volume that do affect how we learn skills. And this is in things like how intense your training is, if you have disruptions in your training, if you're using training aids such as simulation or scope guides, and the quality of teaching and feedback that you're receiving, as well as a trainee's innate ability. And some of these are modifiable and can be targets for improvement. And especially kind of with the pandemic, I know procedure volumes have been really decreased and a lot of centers have looked to things such as simulation to help trainees get extra experience, specifically around things like polypectomy, where there may not be as many cases. Yeah, I think that's a really important point as a program director. And I know we work together on the specialty committee in gastroenterology here in Canada. I think that's a common thread, at least among the pediatric gastroenterology programs over the last two years, is a bit of concern about the potential impact on procedure numbers for our trainees through the pandemic. And, and so uh, I think it is really important to take a step back and say what else is important in achieving confidence or ensuring our trainees are confident over and above just raw numbers. And it's, I think it's kind of analogous to the time-based training versus competency-based training models, you know, the, the teabag steeping idea that if I make you do this many procedures, you will be an expert as opposed to if you have this many procedures with good coaching feedback and you take the right approach to your, tr your own training, you'll have a different outcome. Yeah, and how can we make the most of each endoscopy procedure so that they're actually learning more from each procedure and ultimately 
achieving competence sooner than they would have if they're just kind of doing procedures with minimum feedback. Right. Yeah, it's true. If, yeah. if we can just move on to the next standard. So the next standard in that Penguin paper states, competence assessment tools with strong validity evidence should be used to document progress and proficiency level during endoscopy training. And this follows nicely on from our previous discussion around, you know, achieving confidence. Besides giving the trainees everything they need to get there, we need to be able to determine are they there or not or in how they are doing. So you developed the gastrointestinal endoscopy competency assessment tool or GCAT. GIE CAD or GCAT <laughs> um, for pediatric endoscopy to do just that. So, can you talk a little bit about what that tool looks like and how it's implemented in practice and maybe how it compares to some other assessment tools that are out there? Yeah. So, as you mentioned, assessment is really integral to training, not only throughout training to help monitor how a trainee is progressing and to make sure that they do get feedback kind of on a consistent basis. But also once they are kind of at that level where you think they are competent for having a more formal assessment of competence. So with regard to pediatric endoscopy, there's really two main published uh, direct observational assessment tools for pediatric ileocolonoscopy. And those are the gastrointestinal endoscopy competency assessment tool, which our group had developed and the Joint Advisory Group's Direct Observation of Performance Tool for Colonoscopy. And we had just published a systematic review of colonoscopy competence assessment tools, both in adult and pediatric practice. And both of these tools have very strong validity evidence for use during training. So if you look at the two tools, the JAG-DOPS consists of kind of 24 items that are rated on a four-point global rating scale, and it's used throughout the United Kingdom for both training and certification processes. And in the United Kingdom, they have a very robust assessment system, which I'm always very jealous of. They really have it integrated into training and a very formal process for determining competence. And the GIE CAT consists of an 18-item checklist, which are really key steps required to complete the procedure as well as a seven-item procedure-specific global rating scale that assesses more holistic aspects of colonoscopy. So things like technical skills or patient safety or knowledge. And both of, I think it's important to point out that both the GIE CAD and the JAG-DOPS tools assess more than just technical skills. They look at, as well as technical skills, they look at cognitive skills and endoscopic non-technical skills. So things such as patient safety or teamwork and communication, which are equally important to performing endoscopy. And at our center, the way we kind of integrate assessment into training, we have the entrustable professional activities through our Royal College, but we also have a short kind of log that the trainees fill out on their phones after each procedure. And this integrates or embeds the GCAT into it. And from that log, we then summarize how uh, trainees are doing four times a year and give them that data. And that data is also used at our program's competence committee meetings. And it really helps to make sure that trainees are progressing well with regard to their procedures and that their kind of quality metrics as well as their assessments are improving over time. So just to make sure I understand this correctly, that the trainees themselves are the ones who fill out the competency tool. And is it after every procedure or is it after every month? 
So we have a, they have a short log that they fill out after each procedure that gives kind of basic information in terms of how far they got um, and general characteristics about the patient and if they've done any kind of therapeutics. And then within that, there's an option to trigger an assessment so they can choose that they want to trigger an assessment and then the faculty would fill that out. And we've generally recommended that trainees are doing an assessment kind of between every 10th and 25th procedure. That's really, that's really cool. And how does it work if a trainee works with different faculty? Yeah, so because it's on their phones, they can then give it to, to anybody. So any faculty, so they don't have to work with one faculty. That's good. That's yeah, no. Interesting. This was a very interesting topic. I'm sure we can talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our talk. Looking back at your career, uh, what has been the most valuable advice you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? So I'd say the most valuable advice I was given was to explore kind of your passions and pursue what you love. So especially in regard to research, I think you truly need to be passionate about and love what you're doing and find it fascinating as it takes a lot of time and effort to develop a program of research. And I know when I started out my research career in medical education, I had a lot of pushback as it was a pretty new field and people didn't really understand kind of what it meant to study education. But I remember specifically one of my mentors telling me at the time that if you do what you love you love and you do it well, then you'll show people the value of the educational work and it will speak for itself. So I think I really took that advice to heart and have been fortunate that I've been able to end up integrating educational research into my career. Yeah. I think I also wanted to just highlight, um, I think the importance of both mentors and sponsors. I've been really fortunate to have many strong mentors during my career that have provided me kind of with guidance and advice and coaching and really helped to foster my career development but I think equally important are sponsors. And we don't hear as much about them, but they really provide more external facing support, things like advocating on your behalf or expanding your visibility within organizations and really opening doors to opportunities that you may not otherwise have had opportunity to participate in and helping to foster kind of connections. And I think especially for me being in an underrepresented research field, such as education, Sponsors have really been instrumental in my career advancement. And I think too often in medicine, many trainees and early career physicians are over-mentored and maybe under-sponsored. So I think as faculty, it's really important that we reflect and consider the ways in which we can act as sponsors to help foster somebody's career development, particularly those and typically kind of underrepresented, who are underrepresented in leadership and professional advancement. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I learned uh, a couple of years ago, learned about the difference between a mentor and sponsor, and I found it very fascinating. And I think the origin of it came out from like the marketing field or the marketing world. And we actually have a, a Bow Sounds episode dedicated for choosing a mentor. And we talk in uh, detail about mentor and sponsor. And there's not a lot of research, honestly, about it. I think that there were a few research about mentor and sponsor in the medical field. And I was like, a, like, wow, <laughs> like, whoa, this makes so much sense that some people can be mentors and some people can be sponsors and some people can be both. For sure. And we'll put links in the show notes for not only the choosing a mentor episode, but there was, we also had an episode with Rina Sangvi 
in season two, specifically talking about sponsorship for women in medicine and the importance for, like you were saying, Catherine, some extra shoulders to stand on or to be propped up on to, to reach some of those leadership positions, to have somebody advocate on your behalf and introduce you to the right people or advocate for you to be put forward for a specific role or project. And that's really important. Yeah. And I want to say this. I love how you paved your own road and people are like, oh, this is not interesting. And you're like, let me prove you wrong. (laughs) And now you're on this podcast talking about the most amazing thing ever, a word that I can't pronounce, ergonomics. (laughs) But it's very important to our field. So that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. This, this has been really great. You've definitely shown everyone the value of what you're doing, Catherine. So thank you again for joining us today on Bow Sounds. Do you have any final words for our listeners? I do. I would just encourage everybody to engage with Naspian and all it has to offer. This year marks Naspian's 50th anniversary, which is so exciting. And I think we have a lot to be thankful for as a pediatric GI community. Naspian is such a strong and supportive community, which I feel very fortunate to be a part of. I think the opportunities it's afforded me and the colleagues and friends I've met through Naspian have really helped to enrich my career. And I just encourage everybody to take advantage of the opportunities that it has um, to offer and become involved. And I'd like to thank you again for having me here today and for all you do for our pediatric GI community. This podcast is great. So... Thank you for making time. We appreciate you. Thank you. So that was a fantastic uh, conversation with Dr. Catherine Walsh. So many great tips, so many different ideas on how to approach teaching for endoscopy, and even just the whole conversation about ergonomics and how important it is to having a long career in GI, uh, taking care of our bodies as we take care of our patients. And so inspiring. She's very inspiring. And she's a person that I uh, really look up to. So it's great. It's a great episode. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it really helps us out if you tell other people about the podcast, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the podcast. And also on our Buzzsprout page, uh, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspigan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of the podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.